Good morning, Cornerstone. How are we doing? All right, what an exciting Sunday. We get to celebrate communion at the end of the service, and you can be prepared for that. It's also true that our care groups are going to be kicking off, and so you may need to be on the lookout for Sam Cogburn walking around in his football helmet again. The elders have officially designated Sam as the care group linebacker, and so he will tackle anyone who is not in a care group. Of course, I'm kidding about Sam tackling you, but I did want to preach a message that would correspond with our care group ministry launch. And an old song came to mind, and allow me to share the lyrics with you. Lean on me when you're not strong. I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. For it won't be long till I'm going to need somebody to lean on. You just call on me, brother, when you need a hand. We all need somebody to lean on. I just might have a problem that you'll understand. We all need somebody to lean on. Bill Withers wrote the song, Lean On Me, which climbed the Billboard charts to the number one single back in 1972. And the irony of the song is that even the world recognizes an occasional need for help from others. In the recent weeks, we've seen the devastating effects from hurricanes uh, across North America. Hurricane Harvey, Irma, and Jose... And we've seen people work together through the efforts of relief organizations and governmental agencies to assist those with physical and financial needs. And much of that work continues even as we speak. As a measure of common grace, God provides the world with people to lean on during desperate times. Of course, the world takes credit for this and gives glory to the creature rather than the Creator. But the principle, even for unbelievers, can still be drawn. That is, they are not meant to bear the burdens of this life alone. And if this is true for the world, how much more for Christians who have been baptized into the body of believers known as the church? By divine design, the Christian life calls us into a life of spiritual dependency and a need for others. We need Christ to save us. We need the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. We need to be discipled, and we need others to disciple us and help us grow. We need church leaders and members to walk with us and hold us accountable. The Red Cross can help the world with their physical needs. But only Christ's cross and the body of Christ, the church, can provide for our spiritual needs. Amen? Who does the Lord have you lean on spiritually? Who do you lean on to bear your greatest spiritual burden when you're going through a trial or when you're battling with sin? Who do you lean on to help you see your pride and self-reliance? Here's another angle. Who leans on you? Who can lean on you when they are struggling through a battle of sin and temptation? Please turn to the book 
of Galatians. And I submit to you this morning that there is a passage that helps us see our need to bear each other's burdens and to be someone in Christ that others can lean on. This message was triggered by a recent sermon that we heard from Pastor Roger Chen a few weeks ago in Galatians when he preached uh, chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. And he featured the grace of God for us. And for those of you who missed that sermon, you'll definitely want to go back to the church website and listen to it. It was an amazing message. And as I was reviewing my sermon notes the following week, I ended up reading the entire book of Galatians. I went back to the passage. You ever had that? You just you, There's a passage, you end up looking it up, you go back to the epistle, and you start reading the passage, and before you know it, you're just like, okay, I just read the whole thing. Well, when I got to the end of Galatians chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, I was struck at how practical these exhortations are for caring for one another in discipleship relationships. And it immediately made me think of care groups. Normally, we don't parachute right into the middle of a passage like this because we, we preach expositionally through, through books. And so it's important that we recognize where we are at in the context before we read it and study it. You can briefly survey the letter with me as I introduce it to you again this morning. The Apostle Paul wrote this encyclical letter or circular letter that was passed out around the churches in Galatia, comprised of six chapters. And the theme of the letter is justification by faith. And Paul undeniably emphasizes the grace of the gospel in salvation. Judaizers, well, yeah, the Apostle Paul had to deal with Judaizers or zealous Jews who were continuing to emphasize circumcision and the works of the law, distorting the true biblical gospel. And even the Apostle Paul was being influenced by them. So Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to record what I would call a zinger of a letter where he faithfully defends justification by faith. In the opening two chapters, Paul expresses his concern and really, I believe, a disappointment uh, at how shocked he was, how quickly the Galatians had deserted the gospel of grace that Paul had just preached to them. Next, in chapters 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, Paul defends the gospel both from his experience and from Scripture. Then in the remaining part of chapter 4, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul emphasizes the call to freedom from the law, to freedom in the Spirit. This freedom in the gospel, Paul says, is expressed in our love for one another. And we see the greatest love ever put on display in God's love for us, right? And that's why we're called to love God, love the Lord your God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor. It sets the precedent. Paul says, this freedom in the gospel is what allows us to express our love for one another, and we can't miss that. And of course, it's very familiar because of our recent study in Mark 12, 30 and 31, when we studied the greatest commandment. But Paul writes in Galatians 5, 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
I recall after I had preached Mark 12, 30, and 31, there was a brother in the church who asked the question, how do I love my neighbor? How, how do I do that? What does that look like practically? And as we'll eventually see in Galatians 6, 2, bearing one another's burdens is a fulfillment of the law of Christ. It is a fulfillment of the law of love. And Paul will get very practical as he spells out what living in the freedom of the Spirit looks like and how it gets expressed. In your outline, you'll notice eight life-giving principles so that we thrive in our love and care for one another and so that we can be somebody in Christ to lean on. We'll cover a few principles this week and the remaining principles next Sunday, Lord willing. And for the sake of time, I'll begin by reading Galatians 5.25 to 6.2. This is what it says, Galatians 5.25 in the New American Standard. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if anyone is caught up in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would bless our study. We, I know my own heart needs to see just the, the incredible impact that this passage can have on the, the body life of our church. And you want us not to miss it. It is so important that your Holy Spirit even led Paul to write that it is a fulfillment of the law of Christ, the law of love. I pray, Father, that you would just illuminate our understanding, that you would help us see this passage with greater clarity than we have before, that you would allow our hearts to be humble and teachable and responsible with what we hear this morning. May your word bless us. May it not return void. May it cause us to be different people as a result of what we hear, and may we apply it to our walks even this week as we go from here. We give you thanks and praise for this time. We ask that you would bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, during my study, I noticed that commentators were split on the placement of verses 25 and 26 that we just read. Some connect them with the previous section in verses 16 through 24, while some allow them to stand alone as transitional verses. Still others connect them with the opening verses of chapter 6. Both the ESV and the NASB leave them independently sitting as their own paragraph at the end of chapter 5. I believe Paul uses them as transitional verses that point both forwards and backwards to the larger context. I also believe they provide vital life-giving principles that can really help us thrive in our love and care for each other, which I will explain. The first life-giving principle comes in verse 25. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Paul says it this way, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. 
Here our spiritual priority is called to order. Paul isn't, isn't questioning whether believers live by the Spirit when he uses the word if, but rather he's asserting it as fact. The Greek order is striking, and it could even be rendered, if we live by the Spirit, by the Spirit also let us walk. It's the ESV that I use for the principle that says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And that's because in the Greek, Paul uses a military term that means to be, to be drawn up in line or to stand in a row. Went to military prep school, and I remember just you know, being instructed on what that looked like to, to fall, fall in. They would say that, right? You would fall in, and you get in, in line. Paul is encouraging us to keep in step with the Spirit and to be careful of falling out of rank. And here it will serve us well to remember the larger context of the epistle. Paul's focus is on the liberty that the gospel of grace provides, and there's a ripple effect that takes place throughout this chapter. Keeping in step with the Spirit points us all the way back to Galatians 5.1, where Paul writes, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Don't fall out of rank. And do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Keeping in step with the Spirit keeps us in line with the true gospel. It reminds us that our works don't contribute to our justification and recognizes our continual need for grace. Paul continues in chapter 5, verse 13, emphasizing the liberty of the gospel when he writes, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Wow. Keeping in step with the Spirit provides such a life-giving perspective. And this is so important to see as we consider thriving in our love and care for, for one another. Why should you and I be in a care group? Is it so that we can serve our flesh? So that we can be in bondage to our spiritual pride? So that we can have a higher view of ourselves and promote a self-righteousness? Of course not. Of course not. Care groups are to be a place where we gather to keep in step with the Spirit and to celebrate our freedom in the gospel and our righteousness rooted in Christ as we serve one another through love. In Galatians 5.16, Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That's a, that's a well-known verse, but it's unfortunate if we don't see it in its greater context. What are the desires of the flesh? What is the spiritual pride and bondage that Paul is warning about? It's that we would take credit, that we would cling to the, the, the fleshly actions and the things that we would do to somehow improve our standing before God or to give an, uh, an impression of justification to other people in a prideful way. Of course, he goes on to list all the problems with immorality, and it's a, 
It's a full and comprehensive list that included not just envy and pride, but it also includes other immorality and even drunkenness, right? So the, the scope is broader, but we, we, we must see it in its context. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And though Paul uses a different word for walk in this verse, the principle remains the same in both verses. We want to be controlled by the Spirit. We want to keep in step or follow the Spirit's leading to resist fleshly, prideful temptations, especially acts of the flesh that point to a righteousness outside of Christ. And if you and I want to be someone to lean on, and we do, don't you? You want to be someone to lean on, then we must lean on the Holy Spirit and the righteousness of Christ, not our flesh, not our self-righteousness. How do we do this? How do you and I do this? This leads us to the second life-giving principle so that we can be someone to lean on. Let us walk in genuine humility. Verse 26 says it this way. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. What it means to keep in step with the Spirit is now explained even more concretely. Paul exhorts the Galatians not to give way to arrogance or pride. He says, let us not become boastful in the New American Standard. And I believe the ESV uses the word conceited. Here Paul uses a nearly identical word that he used back in Philippians 2.3 that was uh, translated conceited that Isaiah uh, unpacked for us so very well last week. And it points to pride or vain glory that is self-serving and not others focused. And just as Isaiah shared, vain glory jockeys for position to make yourself look good rather than seeking ways to benefit and bless others by pointing them to Christ. And you'll recall in Philippians 2.3, Paul issued a zero-tolerance policy for believers when he said, do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory before prescribing the antibiotic of humility to treat this infection. We are called to lowliness of mind and to think rightly about ourselves. Humility is the key that will enable us to lean on others. Humility is the key that will also allow us to have others lean on us. One commentator wrote this about verse 26. Quote, this is a very instructive verse because it shows that our conduct to others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. End quote. It's true, and let me repeat that for you. Our conduct to others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. And if we have a high view of ourselves and are proud and think that we somehow have all the answers, that typically turns people away. And it can also give an impression to those who are struggling that you won't be able to relate to them. 
You don't mess up. You got your life figured out. All your ducks are in a row. You, 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 you're the standard. That's not real. And we don't want that to take place. And our goal in care group should be a genuine desire to help others grow. Not simply to show how much we know. Or how great our life is and how we got figured it out. We, 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 we show up wounded, don't we? I mean, I don't know about you going to care group, but oftentimes I'm limping there. Right? I need encouragement. I need someone to lift me up. My week's hard. Parenting, I don't even know if I got it figured out. Kids are going nuts at home. Wife and I might be offset. We're not communicating well. I need help, right? And we need humble people that are in a position to help us. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, if we are so self-loathing and think we're unable to help or completely inadequate, then others aren't going to be inclined to lean on us either, right? They're not going to want to add to our burden that they they perceive or our our, our attitude of self-loathing. So what is the answer? Romans 12.3 is a great verse to consider. There Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. There's a verse right there that provides perspective for us. Genuine humility ministers through the lens of grace and faith. And it keeps us grounded, reminding us of our own need for Christ so that we don't grow proud. Humility also helps us find our adequacy in Christ and keeps us from feeling deficient, right? The Galatians were still preoccupied with seeking popular acclaim and the esteem of others. Paul affirms that such an attitude belongs to the world of the flesh, not the life of the Spirit. This lust for the limelight led to disastrous results for the fellowship of the Galatian churches. As the remainder of verse 26 shares, they began to provoke and envy one another. Though they had heard Paul clearly preach a gospel of grace, it appears that the Judaizers still boasted of their submission to the law of Moses and were erring on the side of legalism. While another party, the Libertines, erred on the side of grace and may have been equally offensive in parading their newfound freedom from all the restraints of the moral law, thus provoking additional wranglings and disputes. Things apparently escalated to the point they got so bad that Paul sarcastically wrote, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. In Galatians 5.15. And Paul employs the imagery of wild animals attacking and killing each other. A graphic picture of what it can look like if we don't keep in step with the Spirit. And we don't walk in genuine humility. That is a picture to keep in mind. It can get ferocious. And and, and we know this. We've seen this through the lens of experience. What can happen when pride 
butts heads with pride. There's a third life-giving principle so that we thrive in our love and care for one another and so that we can be someone in Christ to lean on. And it comes in chapter 6, verse 1. Let us gently restore those overtaken by sin. Paul writes, Brethren, even if anyone is caught up in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. That's a very full verse. We need to make sure that we grasp it. And dealing with sin in the lives of fellow believers is one of the most difficult tasks that God has called us to do. Yet it's also one of the most important. It impacts the unity, the fellowship, and the purity of the church. And this is why God ordained the ongoing and regular pattern and practice of church discipline, which is so often misunderstood. The goal of church discipline is always spiritual restoration. The goal of church discipline is always spiritual restoration. While the purpose of church discipline is to maintain purity in the church. You want to make sure that you understand um, that on on the big scale. The goal is spiritual restoration of a believers and to, to call them to repentance. But we know not everyone repents of their sin. And sometimes it does lead to places where somebody's gone to them in private, according to Matthew 18. They've also got another brother or sister in Christ and they've gone to them and they've encouraged them to repent again. And they still have refused, right, to repent. And then what happens? It gets told to the church. And everyone reaches out to them. Everyone makes it a a point to call them to repent of the sin that they're caught up in. And this happens all the time, naturally, within the church. The the first couple steps of church discipline, we've mentioned this before, are taking place all the time when people go to each other in private over over an offense. And that's usually... um, by God's grace, where much of of church discipline starts and ends right there, which is a a tremendous blessing if you think about it. And that's a testimony of God's work in the heart of believers that softens them to repentance and doesn't allow them to cling to their sin and to get defensive. Well, it's been my experience that most of the misgivings that take place when believers get addressed about sin are due to a misapplication of Galatians 6.1. And so let's put this verse under the microscope so that we can see it in detail. Here we'll take a brief look at the people, the predicament, the preparation, and the process. Okay? Had a P thing working there, didn't I? The people, the predicament, the preparation... And the process. Each of these are important to see. First, let's notice the people being addressed. Paul first writes, brethren. Stop there. Adelphoi. This is, this is an endearing term that Paul 
uh, one of his favorites that he uses throughout Galatians. Brethren, and this is a message written to all believers. Nobody gets a pass here when it comes to addressing the, the, the sins of others or having your, your sins addressed. Galatians is written to all those in churches in Galatia, and now it addresses every believer in the church age today. Everyone in the church is called to help others in their battle against sin. Next is the predicament. If anyone is caught up in any trespass, stop here for a moment. Again, believers are in view. We know this because the goal is spiritual restoration, which wouldn't make sense if anybody, it wouldn't make sense if unbelievers um, and those outside of Christ were the ones being addressed. The verb translated caught literally means to be detected or overtaken. And it can also be translated surprised. And it reflects someone entrapped or ensnared in sin or a pattern of sin that is impacting their fellowship with other believers. We have the people, the brethren, the church. We have the predicament. If anyone is caught up in a sin or a pattern of sin, this leads us to the preparation. And notice what our verse says next. You who are spiritual. Is that what it says in the ESV? I forgot to look. Does it say the same thing? Okay. You who are spiritual. What is this all about? Is there a special class of spiritually elite people in the church? Is this referring to elders and pastors and spiritual leaders only? Not hardly. Our immediate context is the key to unlocking what Paul means here. You who are spiritual is referring to those who are keeping in step with the Spirit and those who are walking in genuine humility. They are the ones who are qualified and prepared to address the sins and sin patterns of other believers. And it's also the very reason why Jesus shares what he did in Matthew 7. Very familiar passage. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, in that context, in Matthew 7, Jesus is warning about spiritual hypocrisy and emphasizes the vital need of humility and to have your own heart prepared before rashly featuring the sins of others like the Pharisees did. There needs to be preparation. Well, this leads us now to the process. And the people, the predicament, okay, We're going to keep moving. The process. Look at the middle of verse 1. You who are spiritually ready, you who are keeping in step with the Spirit and walking in genuine humility. We know this now. This is, this is what it is saying. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. This word restore 
is a fascinating word in the Greek, which literally means to put in order or restore to its former condition. Now, at face value, you see that. That doesn't, there's nothing very um, intriguing about that. But the word comes together, and it's actually used in, in two other forms elsewhere in the New Testament. And, and it's used for the mending of fishing nets. And it was also part of the medical vocabulary of ancient Greece where it meant to set a fractured or, or a dislocated bone. Adds a little bit of perspective. Have any of you ever had a net or a cord get all tangled up? Have you had that experience? Know what I'm talking about. Need I say more? And what it's like to unravel the mess, and to, to, to put it back together again. And you're, you're working along and, you know, things are coming together and then keep going and why isn't this coming undone? That's my experience, right? What's going on, right? Ugh. Man, the last thing you want to do is, is try to fix it carelessly. Because in the end, you'll only make matters worse. I think I'm not alone um, in, in having done that. Well, the same can be said of taking care of someone with a fractured bone. Anyone's had that experience? And there are a number of guys, and when I played football, ended up breaking their legs during games and on, on the field. And um, it was a serious situation, and they would have to come right out, and, you know, they were very cautious, and for good reason. You just didn't say, you know, you know, suck it up. Come on, man, you got to get up when somebody's got a broken femur, right? There was, a, <laughs> there was a sensitivity there, as there should be. It requires gentleness, as the medical professionals in our church will testify to. And the same is true in the process of addressing sin in the church and in the life of a believer. We can't do it care carelessly. We can't do it without being prepared. It calls for a spirit of gentleness and caution. Why? Why? Look at the end of verse 1. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. The last thing we want is for the sin of someone else to cause us to respond sinfully or be tempted to get angry with them or to not care for them, right? Here Paul isn't necessarily suggesting that the sin they're struggling with will automatically become a source of sin for us. Although there is a place for that, right? Let the man who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, and that we don't get caught up. But in this instance, Paul, in the greater context of the, later, uh, of the letter, is actually talking about this issue of pride that is epidemic. He also isn't calling for leniency that overlooks the transgression committed. But he is saying that the work of restoration should be done with sensitivity and gentleness with no hint of self-righteous 
superiority. The last thing we want is for their, their sin and the situation to tempt us to sin. And Proverbs 51 is a great verse to keep in mind. A harsh word stirs up strife, but a gentle answer turns away wrath. And the key word again, gentleness. Gentleness. Now I want you to remember this. And so I have what I think is a good illustration, but I'm going to need some help. David West, you're here, aren't you? Saw you. David West, can you come up here for a minute? I need your help. Thank you, brother. David, I have a problem. <laughs> yes. I, I have sin in my life. Okay? Or as Jesus expressed it, I have a, a speck in my eye. Uh, now I have a question. What, what do you do for a living? Optometry. I said that like a true southern right there. What do you do for a living? No, we, you're an optometrist. I had no idea that you were an optometrist. Well, it's great because God has equipped you to do what I need you to do. I have dirt in my contact lens. I have a speck in my eye. The problem is I don't see it, and nor do I have a mirror in front of me right now. And so I need you to take my left contact lens out of my eye. Really? Yes. So, so I got contact solution right here for you, right here. And so, so but just, just in interacting, David, what, you, what are some preparations that would need to take place before you do this, just in general? Don't buy generics. Okay. <laughs> don't buy generic contact solution. Equate. Walmart, half the price, rebuke the pastor when he's using Excellent. And I received that, and I will not buy generic again, my friend. But, you know, obviously, you're going to make sure that your hands are clean, right? right? And I know you're like all of our medical doctors. You washed them 15 times before the service started. So, no, they're clean, and they're ready to go. Right. You want to... You wanna, you, you want to make sure that your hands are clean because the last thing you want to do, uh, if I have an issue with my eye and my lens, is, is to bring in something that is going to worsen the situation, right? You want to make sure your hands are clean. You want to make sure that your heart's right to, to, to minister. This is a spiritual lesson that we're trying to look at here, okay? Okay, now what do you need to do? If I tell you that there's dirt in, in my eye, you need to assess the situation, right? So if I say that my contact lens is dirty, you need to verify that, and you're going to gain perspective, right? And so by default, that, 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 that makes you think that you can't have anything in your eyes. You know what I'm saying? You can't have anything that's obstructing your view, but you need to make sure that you, you see things clearly. Okay, now I have another question for you, David, as an optometrist. You're going to approach my eye. It's a sensitive area. Are you just going to reach in and grab my contact out of my eye? Usually. <laughs> okay, this is not going as well as I thought it would. No, but the, you get this. The eye is a sensitive area. 
And you can't just reach in and grab it. Although you have great amount of experience, right? Right. We, 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 we want to be gentle because what, it can actually cause pain. It can actually make somebody very uncomfortable. Okay. It's, it's go time, right? Are, are you ready to take it? I'm really not. Okay. I'm really not going to. How do you do this? Thank you, David, for coming up. You know, not only is he a great optometrist, but he's also a great care group leader. And he's proven himself as somebody to lean on in this church. And you know what doesn't surprise me? Is that even when I asked him to do that, to take out my lens, was there a willingness on his part to do it? There was. It was without hesitation. And part of that is because he recognizes the very uh, fact that God has equipped him to do what I was asking him to do. And oh, dear friends, the same is true for you. God equips you to do what he's asking you to do. Now, I did notice something when I asked David to go ahead and, and, and take my contact out of my eye, that some of you started to cringe. You know who you are. You, you, you were doing this, literally. I could see you in the background. You were uncomfortable with what was taking place because it doesn't seem natural to let somebody touch such a sensitive area, does it? It doesn't seem natural. And that's because it's not. It's supernatural. It's a supernatural provision of the Lord to be gently and spiritually restored by someone in love when we are caught up in sin. And not only do they have to be spiritually prepared by keeping in step with the Spirit and walking in humility, but as we've seen, it also takes the extreme measure of gentleness. And it also takes a willingness on my part to allow another believer to ask me about personal or sensitive areas of my walk. And if we're going to be someone to lean on in Christ, then we must be willing to do that, which does not come natural to us. We must be willing to allow others into our lives. And the key for this taking place is the predication of all ministry, right? It is relationships. It is growth in our relationships. Will you allow someone to get to know you well enough so that you can share your, your sins, your deepest sins and your struggles? Will you open up? Will you allow them to touch that sensitive area of your life and to minister to you? Kind of like that with the contact, isn't it? But if we focus on the Lord, if we trust the Lord's provision of it, right, it can calm our fears. It is liberation. It is freedom that the gospel provides for us to be set free from the bondage or that which we're entangled up in. But there has to be a willingness on our part to share. We'll look more at that this next Sunday, even in greater detail, as we consider our next verse and life-giving principle, which is, let us bear each other's burdens. 
Listen, no one can bear your burden if you don't share your burden. No one can bear your burden if you don't share your burden. And this is what it means to fulfill the law of Christ. This is what it means to fulfill the law of love. And we need it to take place. Now our application for this message is going to be unique this week. Tomorrow you're going to have the opportunity to sign up for care group. At the beginning of the service, I asked you a series of questions. Do you remember them? Who does the Lord want you to lean on? Who will you lean on to bear your greatest spiritual burdens when you're going through a trial or you're battling with a sin? Who does the Lord hope will lean on you? Who can lean on you when they're struggling through a trial or battling sin and temptation. Your application this week is to answer those questions. And, and not just say, oh, maybe the Cerritos care group. Identify names. Identify people. People were asking me, they're like, I don't, you know, I'm, we were thinking about changing up care groups. Um, what should I do? What should I be looking for? What's, what's it? We have it right here. Right before us in these, these principles that we're going to cover. And finish covering next Sunday. It is my prayer that the life-giving principles that you've heard today will help you be someone to lean on and that others will also be able to lean on you. That you will keep in step with the Spirit. That you will walk in genuine humility and that you will gently restore anyone caught up in sin. And as we prepare to receive communion now, allow me to close with the familiar chorus with which we started. Lean on me when you're not strong. I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. For it won't be long till I'm going to need somebody to lean on. Just call on me, brother, when you need a hand. We all need somebody to lean on. I just might have a problem that you'll understand. We all need somebody to lean on. Pray with me. Oh, Father, there is comfort in your word. We thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for his life and the ultimate expression of humility. He is the supreme example of humility for us to follow. And he also is the supreme example of someone who kept in step with your spirit and who was guided throughout his life, as the kenosis even reminds us, as he emptied divine privileges, he completely and fully trusted on the, the Holy Spirit for guidance when he walked on this earth. And he is the greatest picture of one who can restore every heart that is caught up in sin. And so, first and foremost, our minds and our thoughts are captivated by him. Yet we also want to see, 
what you have for us and what you have for our church and the body life that you desire to exist in our ministry. And Lord, many of us have tasted and, and, and experienced this in our care groups, but there are many that haven't. And we just pray that you'll continue to allow there to be a greater depth cultivated in relationship and that the only righteousness that we'll ever cling to is the righteousness of Christ. Help us to renounce our pride. Help us to renounce and forsake any impressions that we try to give that somehow we got our lives in order and we got it all figured out. We have seen the danger of that and we'll continue to see it even next week as your word is displayed before us. And how fitting it is for us now to celebrate communion. Father, we pray that you would allow us to rejoice, rejoice in the righteousness of Christ as we celebrate this ordinance. And that it can also be a time for us to even consider the sin that we're dealing with in our own lives and any missteps that are outside of walking with the Spirit. We ask that you'll bless our time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.